So I'm particularly excited about summer, probably more than any other year that I've lived in Santa Barbara, which has been about 14 years, I think because uh, normally it's summer all year long, but now it's a little rainy, a little drizzly, there was some hail involved uh, on one particular day, it's windy and it's cold, and my family is just waiting, we're just anticipating the summer days. My family loves the beach. And uh, we love making sandcastles, we love surfing, we love getting in the water. But I found, especially in this last year, that my family, especially the little uh, side of my family, really enjoys that space between the sand and the ocean where they overlap, where the water kind of creeps up and then runs back, because it turns out there's all sorts of treasures to be found in that little space seashells and uh, water-blown rocks and uh, uh, glassy rock and sand crabs has been the latest event. Uh, My kids love these sand crabs. What we've been doing is uh, going up to the shore where the water will kind of curl up to the dry sand, and when it washes away, we'll dig a big old hole. And as the water washes up into that hole, it leaves a pond there, and my kids will just be freaking out. They'll just be so excited because in that little pond, all of a sudden, after uh, wave after wave, are dozens, maybe even more, of these tiny little swimming sand crabs. And they'll just dip their hands in there. They'll try to grab them. They can't get any of them. And they're just gleeful and hollering and laughing. And at some point, I always get this question from either Abby or Jude. And it's, Dad, where's the big sand crabs? You know, like the one you showed me the other day? And it's at that point that I walk up to the pond, I roll up my sleeves, and I say, well, for those, you got to go a little bit deeper. And so I'll plunge my hand, especially after the water comes up, deep down into the sand until I feel just that very uncomfortable feeling of legs on my hands, and I'll pull something out for the good of my family, you know. And there it is, the prize, just this giant sand crab, and my kids are just freaking out. They're loving it. They're letting it dig back into the sand, and it's, it's all over. And I inevitably say to one of my kids, there's certain things in life that you got to dig deeply for. If you can understand that, you can understand Lent, Lent is all about going deep. Some things in life are worth digging deeply for. And there are things underneath the surface in every single one of us in this room, myself included, you, me, us, that God wants to dig out and pull up. Some of those things are bad, right? Some of those things are the damaging, unhealthy patterns and habits, cravings, desires that all of us in this room have. God wants to dig those things out and get rid of them for your joy and for his glory. But some of those things are not bad things at all. They're good. They're the good things in your life that God designed you for. I love how Ephesians chapter 2 says, Before the foundations of the earth, all of you were created with good works in which you were called to walk in. Before you were born, God had a plan and a purpose for your life. And so there are giftings. There are deep parts of your personality, of your mind, of your heart that God created you with and for that for some of us, maybe for a lot of us, are lying latent untapped, untouched, unactivated. God wants to bring that to the surface too. God wants to do a great work in people. He wants to do a great work in you. But there are certain things that God has to dig deeply in order to get. You want the small stuff? You want the small sand crabs? Well, that's right on the surface. But I've found, perhaps you've already found, the Bible is full of stories of how the deep stuff, 
The good stuff, the gold, is deep down within where God has to do some, uh, uh, some deep digging. And a lot of that just won't happen on the surface. Some of that deep work is often seen, when you read through the Bible, you often see some of that deep work of God take place in what we call the wilderness. The wilderness. And the wilderness in the Bible is often literal. It's people in an actual wilderness. But it often has these parallels and metaphors that are similar to our lives. And ever, there were so many people in the Bible who encounter wildernesses. It's, uh, it seems like it's inevitable, whether it's Elijah or Jeremiah or Moses or Abraham, David, Ruth, Esther. They all have wilderness experiences. But I want to start with Jesus. I want to start with Jesus, uh, of whom it's said in the first couple verses of Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It's not just your average person in the Bible. It's not your friend. It's not your cousin who struggled with life. It's our Lord and Savior, the one who we emulate, the one who we look to, the author and perfecter of our faith. Even he goes through wilderness experiences. Uh, And I want to start this morning by defining what I mean by wilderness. I, I'm not saying that this means you're going to have to go off into the desert, Joshua Tree or the Dead, you know, something like that, Death Valley, although that might, that might be true for you. The wilderness for us means seasons when life is difficult. That's what it is. Jesus encountered a literal wilderness, but it was also a season in his life that was difficult. Think of the things that he ran into in that wilderness experience. There was no food. There was no water. He had no relational support system. For all intents and purposes, this almost seems like the voice of his father quieted down. We could almost say the manifest presence of God seems to be, uh, uh, seems to be gone for the moment, and instead we get the manifest presence of the devil in opposition to Jesus. The wilderness, then, is more than just a desert. It stands for all of those seasons where our life is difficult, where spirituality is dry, where we don't hear the voice of the Lord, where we don't have the answers to our questions, where life is hard. And I want you to understand this point, that wildernesses do not stop because you became a Christian. Wildernesses do not stop because you decided to follow Jesus. I would argue to say they seem to become more plentiful when you start following Jesus. Wildernesses do not go away when you become a Christian. And you need, no, uh, you need not look any farther than Jesus Christ himself, the sinless son of God, who is perfect, who is the beloved of the Father, who came in, uh, uh, in human and divine form, who is led by the Spirit, verse 1, into the wilderness. In other words, here's a, a few things I want you to note about the wilderness, because we're all going to encounter them. One, sometimes the things that we go through in life happen because of our behavior and actions as a matter of consequence. That's true. But not all wildernesses are that way. Some, I'm saying that because some of you are perhaps going through a difficult season in your life right now. And you might be tempted to give up. You might be discouraged. You might be saying things like, am I doing something wrong? Is God mad at me? Have I missed it somehow? Am I not doing the right set of Christian practices? Why is life so hard? Sometimes it is because we make wrong decisions and we live with the consequences, but not always. We see right here, 
the Holy Spirit leads Jesus, the sinless Son of God, into a wilderness experience. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead you into a wilderness. Sometimes it has nothing to do with whether you've done the right or wrong thing. It has nothing to do with whether uh, God is upset or not. It actually has to do with his love. God leads the people that he loves into wilderness experiences. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. It lasted uh, Jesus 40 days. How many of you, when you've encountered a difficulty in your life, you're like, okay, God, I've been through this for two hours. Turn it off. I think I've had a learning experience that was great, right? He's all, nope. (laughs) Jesus went through the wilderness for 40 days. That means the wilderness doesn't refer to moments. It refers to seasons, not seconds. It refers to seasons in our life that are difficult, not seconds. Sometimes they're not over quickly. The last thing is, if you skip ahead to verse 14, you see that Jesus, from this point, goes on to begin his earthly ministry. But he never does that until he gets through this wilderness experience. Meaning that the wilderness is necessary for our effectiveness. The wilderness is necessary for your activation. God will use difficult seasons in your life to shape you for the future to come. So you might be looking at this and you say, well, that's great. I'm going through a wilderness of my own. Or I'm about to encounter a a difficult season and I don't know how to handle it. I want to give you three ways to think about the wilderness in the way that we defined it. Three ways to think about the wilderness. We're going to talk about the purpose of the wilderness. We're going to talk about the process of the wilderness. And we're going to talk about the fruit of the wilderness. Or in, in other words, we're going to talk about why God sends us into wilderness seasons. Two, we're going to talk about what we should be doing when we're in them. And lastly, what we should hope to find. What the reward, what the joy of coming out of those seasons should be like. But here's the purpose of the wilderness. When you read through the scriptures and you see men and women of God going through the wilderness, it almost never happens by accident. It never happens as like a, a God's B plan, you know, like, oh, I didn't see that coming, David, you know, but I have, a, I have plan B, right? It always seems to be the thing that God's spirit is doing in people's lives. God desires to work in his people, deep, transformative, renewing work. But what we see in the scriptures is that the wilderness is often where God does that work. The work happens in the wilderness, not on the surface. Some of his best work happens underneath the surface, often where it's uncomfortable, where it's insecure, where it hurts. And that's really what Lent is all about. Lent started centuries ago, almost right after, within the generation of Jesus, after he rose from the dead and ascended, in his place by the power of the Holy Spirit where it was a a grouping of a fledgling group of Galilean fishermen and others from around the world that just encountered Christ resurrected. They were euphoric. They loved Christ. They threw down their nets, their ways of living, and they left it all behind to follow this Jesus in whom they put all of their trust. But they were encountering a little bit of opposition, the Roman opposition. See, at that time, it was becoming increasingly more difficult to follow Jesus. At a certain point, it was made illegal. As the church began to meet underground, uh, as gathering was illegal at that time, 
uh, it, looked like a contra- it looked like a conspiracy to the Roman government. And so they began hauling pastors and parishioners and believers into prison. Within a single generation, following Christ became the best thing ever and the worst thing ever all at once. It was the best thing ever because people saw and believed and trusted in. This is the way to eternal life. Jesus is the one who brings God's kingdom. I am willing to give up everything to follow this man. It was also the worst thing at the time because they actually had to give up everything to follow Jesus. It became illegal. For some of them, they were dragged off to prison. Others lost their jobs and their livelihoods. Others were separated from their families. Some were thrown into prison. Others were thrown into the Colosseum to, to battle with lions, a battle that didn't last very long. Some of them lost limbs. Others were executed. This was Christianity in its beginning stages. You can have the best thing that you've ever seen in your life, Jesus Christ crucified and risen and manifest by the Spirit of God. But for those early Christians, it was going to cost them. And so a question arose from those early church leaders. How do we take these new believers and, uh, and help them to be sustained in some of the worst opposition we've ever encountered in our lives? And there were no church buildings back then. There were no home groups. There were no seminaries or theological uh, schools. There were no cohorts. There were no books. There were none, none of that stuff. It was just a bunch of people that just knew that Jesus was real. And so they started to develop a training regimen. They started to gather Christians together, teaching them spiritual practices like fasting and prayer. They also uh, taught them to immerse themselves in scriptures, sometimes for years at a time, filling their minds and their hearts with things about Jesus. But not just filling their minds, training their bodies to withstand difficulty. That's where fasting came from. Jesus would go on to say in the Gospel of Matthew, sometimes the spirit is willing to do the things of God. It's the flesh that's weak. And so these early Christians begin to train their flesh. That usually happened, uh, tradition tells us that that happened in the week leading up to Easter, uh, between Good Friday and Easter. But over time, after the decades would pass, that weekend started to expand into longer training systems. It first was a weekend, and then it was a week, and then it was multiple weeks, until eventually the early church was like, you know, Jesus trained in the wilderness for 40 days, we're going to do that too. And Lent was born. Lent came out of the early church wanting to train themselves to be sustained in their faith when opposition came their way. So that when the world, when the Roman juggernaut squeezed them, what would come out was not discouragement and doubt, but faith joy, and love. That's where Lent comes from. Lent, in that way, prepares us for Easter. Have you ever felt this way, like when we've gone through the year together as as a church, Easter just comes right out of nowhere, right? We might be going through a series or a book of the Bible, and then all of a sudden, Easter, and there's like flowers up everywhere, bounce houses outside, giant cross, we're singing big songs, everyone's dancing, baptisms, then it's over in a day, and you're like, oh, what just happened? Lent, in this way, prepares our hearts to receive what Easter is all about. It teaches us how we got there. It teaches us how special it is. It prepares us. And here's what it does. Here's the purpose of the wilderness, is for us to reenact the very story that Jesus himself lived in the wilderness. We're not fast-tracking to Easter here. We're not fast-tracking to to the resurrection 
which is sometimes how I feel about my life. I'm like, Lord, I'm going through a difficulty. Just give me the resurrection. Give me victory, God. Like tomorrow, Monday, I'm ready. Get on my timeline. I need breakthrough. I need a miracle. I need a word from God. And instead of those things, sometimes God slows me down and sticks me in the desert to hear from him, to grow close to him. But that's what Lent is all about. We are reenacting the story of Christ in the wilderness. We're joining him in his wilderness. We're reenacting the story because stories are so incredibly powerful. Culture is filled with stories. You are constantly being bombarded with stories. You're living your own stories. You're living stories that you've accumulated from your childhood, from your families of origin, from your workplace and career, from Hollywood, from Washington, D.C., from all over the world. Stories are incredibly powerful to shape what you think is important and how you can get it. And I don't, need to, I don't need to tell you about the power of a good story. I recently read a book. Uh, I know it's an old, older one, a uh, few years old. But Wonder, the adult, young adult novel, Wonder, about this young kid who'd been homeschooled his, his, for most of his first years because he had a disfigured face. And at fifth grade, his parents just kind of shoved him into a public school. And the whole story is about this boy with a, a grossly disfigured face trying to navigate and survive elementary school or middle school. And it is a heartwarming story, right? Uh, it's told from the perspective of his sister, from him, from uh, other friends, from bullies in his class. And so there's all sorts of things about that story that are mesmerizing. The way that it's written, the prose, the storytelling, some of the one-liners. But the thing that I left with when I left, uh, when I finished that book, was not the one-liners. It was the overarching story that Wonder was trying to tell me. That even if you have something wrong with you, even if there's something that other people are mocking, even if there's something that is holding you back, you too can rise to this place, rise to this level of inspiration where other people can be blessed by, you know, stuff like that, where you're like, I read the book and like, I know it's fiction, it's just a young adult fiction novel, but I put the book down, I'm like, I'm going to take over the world, All right, and I left the home and just came back because I had to make dinner, but wonder, <laughs> stories are powerful. That's all we're doing leading up to Easter. We are reenacting a powerful story. That's the purpose of the wilderness, but what happens when you're in the wilderness? Because here, here's the thing about life, and a lot of you already understand this and know this. We don't have to reenact wildernesses. We don't have to reenact the wilderness. They're gonna come. They're gonna come our way. Jesus said that all who want a desire to live a godly life will encounter difficulty, challenge, and persecution. Paul spoke about this too. In this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The wilderness will be there waiting for us. The question some of us are asking, perhaps, is what do we do when we get there? How do we not waste our wilderness experience? I want to divert your attention to Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 2, uh, where after the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, we notice that Jesus does not just sit there passively waiting for stuff to happen. It says that he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So this is where the historic church gets the idea of fasting for Lent. But I want to move beyond the details of fasting, which we'll talk about a lot in the weeks to come, and see what Jesus is doing in the wilderness. He's training 
He's not just sitting there idly waiting passively for something to happen, whether good or bad. He's saying, I am going to press into this process for what the Father has for me. I'm not going to waste even the hardest situations in my life. I'm not going to waste the desert. I'm not going to waste the wilderness. I'm not going to waste seasons of difficulty in life. I am going to train. Uh, When I was younger, there was a bracelet that was very popular. You still see it every now and then, but very popular when I was a kid uh, that had an acronym on the bracelet that Christians used to wear. It said WWJD. Anyone know what that stands for? What would Jesus do, right? And it was a way for Christians to remind themselves in the moment, you know, when you're just about to lose it on your kid or you're getting road rage or you want to cut corners or not do your tax, you know, whatever the situation is, you read that and in that moment you're like, what would Jesus do if he were in this situation? For a lot of us, it just made us feel super guilty because we're nothing like Jesus. But the idea behind the bracelet was to recalibrate your heart to what Jesus would do in that moment. I would argue going a step further because when I, when I used to do that, I would just make up what I thought Jesus would do in this situation. And sometimes I got it wrong. What we should, perhaps what we should be saying instead of what would Jesus do is what did Jesus do? Because we have a record of that right here. He did a lot of stuff. And in the wilderness, Jesus trained. And when his disciples were in the wilderness, he taught them to train. How did he train? I want to give you two ways that he trained. We'll get into the details of this in the weeks to come, but here's what I want us to wrap our hearts around. What Jesus did was release something that he did not need. He released something that he did not need. In this case, food. He released something that he did not need. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. In other words, there was a gap in there. There was a hunger in there. He's fasting. He's hungry. He's leaving aside a bodily craving. Now, he's not just doing that for fasting's sake. He's not, just, uh, he's not just releasing stuff that he doesn't need for the sake of releasing stuff. This isn't like tidying up, you know, like Marie Kondo, although I love Marie Kondo. She's awesome. Uh, half my clothes have that trifold and the little, you know, smoothing with love type of thing. Hey, that's all good. I love it. I'm a fan. But this is not what Jesus is doing. This is something else. He's releasing what he does not need in order to replace it with something that is already his. Look at the next verse in Luke chapter 4, verse 4. This is after the devil tempts him and says, hey, I know you're hungry, Jesus. All you have to do is turn that rock into a piece of bread, and you'll be fine. And Jesus could have done that. He could have eaten bread. He could have, eaten the, he could have quit his fast 20 days in, Right? but he refuses to do it. Why? His response is, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's right here quoting uh, Moses in Deuteronomy. The rest of that line says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Father. In the Gospel of John, Jesus would say to his disciples when they were like, do you have bread that we don't know about? And he said, "I I I I have bread that you don't even, you're not even aware of. I eat stuff that you don't even know about. He would go on in the same gospel to say, my food is to do the will of my Father. I'm fine. I don't need some of the things that you need in this moment because I'm sustained by, these, by, by a deeper inner life with my Father. In other words, he's releasing what he didn't need to rely on his Father instead of his own human resources. You might already be thinking of stuff that God wants to pull out of your life right now. That's good. Allow him to do that. That's the voice of God starting to rearrange furniture. 
in the last series in rhythms, we talked about things that we wanted to add into our lives to open our eyes to God. This time, God might be wanting to take some stuff away. It might not even be physical things. It might be noise. It might be ideas. It might be things that are just blinding you to see the fullness of what God has for you. But if God is stirring that up in your heart, just let him do it. You don't have to figure it out right now. We're going to be in this series for a few weeks, but just allow him to stir up that process. What is the wilder- what's the process of the wilderness? What is the process of Lent? We release what we do not need to rely on what we already have, a life hidden with God in Christ. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, well, some of you might be cringing at the thought not only of Lent, but of fasting or of any spiritual discipline. And some of you might be cringing because you have been, you're more on the freedom side of things. Uh, You might perhaps quote to me Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and say, it's by grace that we have been saved. We don't have to do anything. It's by grace that we have been saved. It is not as a result of our works that anyone should boast. It is a gift of God, grace through faith. And you might be thinking, I don't need to do anything. I just need to be passive and allow God to do stuff. I don't need to practice fasting. I don't need to read the scriptures. I don't need to uh, be a part of the church gathering. I don't need to do stuff in order to earn God's love. And you would be absolutely right because there is nothing we can do to earn God's love, amen? All of his love has been freely bestowed upon anyone who wants it in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All we do is to receive the gift that has already been given to us. So why do we do stuff? Why, do we, why are we here? <laughs> why do we open up the Bible? That's all action, that's all behavior. Why fasting? Why stuff? Why does Peter say make every effort to pursue things like brotherly love, patience, and kindness? Why does Jesus say it's the person who doesn't just hear my words but does them that reaps the reward? Why does Paul say uh, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure? Is it grace or is it work? It's grace that stirs up holy work in our hearts. For some of us, it simply means that we need to, that grace doesn't just do away with with our effort. Uh, I love this quote by, I forget who the author was, but he says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. We don't earn God's favor, but we certainly engage in the work of God and what he's doing in our hearts. We open ourselves to his work in our lives. Grace doesn't just stick us in the corner. When God saves us, he doesn't just push us in a corner to sit and not do anything and not break anything, but he activates us. If you've been saved by the grace of God, apart from anything that you've done, that should thrill and stir your heart to be like, all right, God, what are we gonna do together? Paul would say this to Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, so on and so forth. Grace doesn't just stick us passively in a corner. It activates us for the things of God. And for some of you, 
You might be cringing because of Lent because you don't want to do anything, but God is inviting you into his work. He's inviting you deeper, and he's saying, hey, if you'll just trust me, if you'll trust what I'm already working in you and open yourself up to me, you will go deeper. Some of you, perhaps, have no problem with that. You're on the other end of religious legalism, perhaps. Maybe you love rules. You're like, rules, rules, rules. You have like a checklist of rules. Ten Commandments, best thing you've ever heard in your life. You're like, if you could just tell me what to do so that I can feel good about my spirituality. You're like that person, right? And so this is no sweat for you. You're like, Lent? Yeah, I've been doing Lent all year long for 30 years. After Easter, I don't even celebrate Easter. I just do Lent all over again. I love Lent. Lent, 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 Lent. I just want rules. I want regulations. I want to check stuff off the box. And for you, maybe your joy has not quite been focused in the right direction. You're like, I love doing stuff because it makes me feel better about myself. Maybe you're battling insecurity. Maybe you're battling loneliness. Maybe you're battling a whole variety of things. And doing spiritual religious requirements uh, offsets that a little bit. And God wants to take you deeper too. He wants, to see, he wants to show you that the joy is not in the rules or in the actions or even in the observances or spiritual practices. It is in the opening of your heart to see Christ Jesus crucified, resurrected, and exalted forever. And that is the point of spiritual disciplines. It's not for practice and discipline's sake. It's for Christ's sake. I want you to imagine every day when I come home from work and I knock on the door and my kids come and greet me at the door, sometimes they open the door and sometimes they do not. But whether they open the door or not has no bearing on whether I love them, right? Sometimes I come to the door and I've got like a briefcase, suitcase, I've got my laptop, I've got all of this stuff and I'm kicking the door and I'm like, hey! And I hear Jude on the other end of the door, mom, dad's home! And he runs off and sits on the couch. And I'm like, hey, open the door! On occasion, I have to open the door myself. But here's the thing. When Abby opens that door, when I hear her little fingers activating that little deadbolt and opening it up and switching the chain, opening the door, and I see her smile, I know with every fiber of my being, whether it's Abby or Jude, they were not thrilled to activate the deadbolt. Like, that wasn't the goal for them. They weren't like, this is really fun. Check it, check it, check it, check it. They were like, dad's home, right? And I'm doing the same thing. It's not about the door. It's not about the spiritual practices. It's about the things that we can adopt in the season that we're in or do away with that will open the door so that we can see Christ more clearly. It's all about Jesus. And so we release what we do not need to rely on what we already have, to train ourselves to go down that pathway with Christ. Some of you might say, well, why do we need to do it for 40 days? Uh, I love this line that I heard from the late author Dallas Willard who said, it, who said it this way, because one drop of water every five minutes will not get you a shower. I'm going to say that again. One drop of water every five minutes will not get you a shower. For some things in life, you need immersion. And that's what Lent is all about. It's immersing ourselves in a story where we reenact the story of Christ and learn to release what we do not need in order to rely on what we already have in him. You might say, well, that's all great and dandy, but why, 
why would I, I know that wilderness experiences come my way. We don't need to make them come, they'll come. And it'd be weird if we did make them come. Kind of morbid. So perhaps you're sitting here saying, because this is what Lent is. It's in addition to all of those seasons that come that are difficult. Lent is the church collective saying, let's go through the wilderness together. You might be saying, that makes no sense. Why would I intentionally choose to reenact a wilderness? Why would I do that? And my third and final point is because of the fruit that you will find in the wilderness, the fruit that you will find in the valley. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, Jesus, after the temptation with the devil, his 40 days of fasting and praying, his time in the wilderness, it says, then Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit to Galilee. A report went about him throughout the surrounding country, and it's at that point that Jesus is activated for his earthly ministry. It's at that point that he begins to heal the sick and cast out devils, speaking the good news. It's at that point that chains start breaking. It's at that point that people are baptized, not just with water, but in power. It's after that point that they're baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only when Jesus goes through the wilderness that he is activated in power by the Holy Spirit. Notice, he didn't get the Holy Spirit on the way out of the wilderness. He already had the Holy Spirit. Luke is very careful to tell us at the very beginning of this passage, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So what changed between point A and point B on the other side of the wilderness? Look at verse 14 again. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Jesus returned in power. He was filled on the way in and he was empowered on the way out, leaving us a model of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. If you have been born again, you have been given the promise of the Holy Spirit. You have been indwelt with him. You have been born again. You have experienced spiritual rebirth. Holy Spirit is in you and upon you and is waiting to be activated inside of you. But sometimes God will bring you through a wilderness so that you can experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And some of you are going through a wilderness right now. And you're saying, this is a waste of my time. I hate this. Get me through this. Nothing good can come from this. And God is saying, just you wait until you hit the other side. You might not be able to see it now, but once you get through there, if you will release the things I'm trying to get rid of and you will rely on Christ, you will come through this tunnel and you will see a light on the other end and you will be a better version of yourself than you ever hoped to dream because I am forming you in the wilderness. The fruit often happens in the valleys, not on the hilltops. It happens in the difficulties, not in the ease and not in the affluence and not in the comfort. And Jesus himself, filled on the way in, is empowered on the way out. And so that's what we're going to look at together for the next few weeks. Next week, we're going to look even more closely at what it means to train for righteousness. We're going to talk about spiritual disciplines. What are they? How do they work? Why should we just totally love them and want more of them in our lives? The week after that, we're going to look at three common disciplines or practices associated with Lent. We're going to talk about fasting. We're then going to look, about, look at prayer. We're going to look at generosity. But we're going to do so in a way as to show how we are releasing something in order to adopt something even better. We're fasting from something in order to feast on something else, Christ. 
When we talk about prayer, we're not just going to talk about any kind of prayer. We're going to talk about silence and stillness. What are, we, what are we releasing from our lives? Noise. Some of you have a lot of noise in your life. There's some lies of the devil that he's speaking into your life, either through yourself, through your flesh, through the world, through your friends. That God wants to draw you away and say, come away and be with me for a season. We're releasing the noise in order to hear from God. Generosity, giving what is ours in order to experience the joy of God. After that, we'll talk about the fruit in the wilderness, specifically the fruit of the Spirit. We'll see what that is all about, what that's like. I hope your heart will be thrilled by what a human life can look like on this earth when the gospel of the kingdom of God touches down. And it's at that point you'll start to see that we've been in the valley together as a church, We've been in the wilderness, but now we're starting to ascend a hill. Talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And then after the fruit of the Spirit will be Palm Sunday. We'll start talking about Jesus walking into the city on a donkey and palm fronds being waved, Hosanna. And then the week after that is Easter, and our minds will be fried at that point, I hope. Adrenal glands blown. But notice we're not just jumping straight to Easter. We're going through the wilderness, because when we get to Easter... I hope and pray you're going to see why it is so incredibly beautiful. Some of you are in a spot right now, and you're asking these questions. I'm in a a difficult situation in my life, a difficult season in my life. What am I supposed to do? What's the point of the wilderness? And I hope that you can see the end goal, the fruit of the wilderness is renewal. I love the word for renewal, Uh, one of the words describing renewal. That's repairing or restoring something that's been worn out. How many of you have been worn out over the years? How many of you need some spiritual renewal? You're tired. You don't want to keep going. You're in a wilderness right now. God is going to bring you hope. But he's not going to bring you hope by taking you out of the wilderness. Just like Daniel, uh, Daniel had to face the lions. God didn't just take him out of the lions then. He shut the mouth of the lions. His buddies, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they didn't, God didn't take them out of the fire. They were in the fire, but they were in the fire unburned. And in the fire, they saw a silhouette of a, the Son of God with them. Sometimes God will bring you through a wilderness. He will not take you out of it, but he will be with you in the wilderness. And if you cling to him, he will make you better than when you started in the beginning. For some of you, there's a lot of junk in there. You're hanging on to it. It's sin, old rusty habits from your past life, and you want so badly for breakthrough in your life. You want the transforming power of God in your life. You hear about others. You hear other stories talking about it, but you don't experience it in your life, and you're wondering about it. It's because there's some junk in there, and God loves you too much to let you hang on to your junk. God loves you too much to coast through this life. And so he's going to poke at some of that stuff. He's going to rearrange that furniture. But we're starting this series with this in mind, that every time that he pokes, every time that he jostles, every time that he rearranges, it's because of his overwhelming heart and love for you, his child, his son or his daughter. And the things that he has in mind for you far outweigh the things that you're going through now. And so we allow him to do that. We say, yes, Lord, and we surrender to it. For some of you, God will bring you into the wilderness in order to bring the wilderness out of you. 
Some of you are clinging onto it, so he's just going to allow you to go into that space. He's all, I'm going to do work in you. What's left for us is our response to him, our response to Christ in the wilderness, whether it's to resist or just to remain unaware or to turn an about face. That's the word where we get repentance from. It's a 180. It's a 180 from where we were going straight into where Jesus is inviting us into. We're saying, all right, Jesus, I I don't have the answers to my questions. I have a lot of doubts. I'm confused. I don't know what this means, but I trust you, and that's all that matters. Take me there. This is the journey we're on, where we're starting. And what I want to do with you right now is I ask uh, Joseph and uh, Robert to come up as we sing and respond through song and musical worship is to start with this question. We don't immediately need to think of things that we need to give up. Although if that's what God is doing, great, go there. I want you to start with a broader question. I want you to start with an overarching question. And that is to ask God, Lord, what do you want to do in me? Not just today, but in the next couple months. What is it that you want to do with, uh, in me and through me? This question is for anybody in this room who's tired of coasting along. This question is for anybody in this room who's tired of the status quo. This question is for anyone in this room who's tired of living off of things that another person has been speaking about. Coasting and relying off other people's spirituality. This is for people who are hungry, who are in a wilderness right now or are about to go into a wilderness saying, there's a bread that will satisfy me deeper than the one that's right in front of me. For all of those in this room who want more out of life and more with God, this is your question. As we sing together, let's continue to ask him and to marinate in that place. God, what do you want to do in me right now and in the weeks to come? And maybe he gives you an answer and maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just kind of pulls you along. But just be content to stay in that place and let him do what he does because everything that God does to his people is good. There's carpets at the front for those of you that like to get into a place by yourself and carve out solitude and kind of use your body to worship. That's a powerful way to allow your heart to catch up to what your body is already doing. That's why we raise our hands. That's why we kneel. That's why we stand. If that's what you need today, please feel free to do that. Go to different parts of the room. There's empty chairs over here. If you just want to be by yourself, meander around the room. Like, don't let stuff get in your way. Get into that place where you can be with Jesus and you can speak with him. I'm going to invite some of the prayer team to come up as well. For those of you that need breakthrough in your life, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to not just fill you up, but to give you power like the Son of God had. Let's just ask for that. Let's ask for that together today. You can also take of the bread as our Lord and Savior taught us. Dip it in the cup, both ends of the stage. And in doing so, remind and reattach your faith off of yourself and onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. Bled on the cross for us, died, but rose again. As you ask this question, I pray that in some way, in some variation, in some form, the answer that you hear would come from Isaiah 43. 
was at the end of that video that we watched God speaking to you in some way saying, I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. Let be it done to us according to his word. In Jesus' name.